Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Coming to you direct from our super secret studio. Hello, this is Washington for Beautiful People on Deep State Radio. We're broadcasting from the West Coast, and today I am thrilled to be joined by writer, producer, Muppet veteran, EVP, and co-creator of a little show you may have heard of, Big Bang Theory, and one of my favorite tweeples, that's people on Twitter, Bill Prady. Hey, Bill. Hey, how are you? Um, how was that intro? Did I did it? I get it all, all sound good? Perfect. Phew, then we're going to stop right here because um, I nailed that. So I think everything else is downhill, right? <laughs> I found you on Twitter, as I found many people, because I've, I'm always interested in what you're talking about, especially um, what's going on with the world. I don't know if you're aware, Bill, but it's a bit of a shit show. And and so I've, I've, I've always been impressed with what you've shared via social media. And I was curious if you'd always been socially active and politically active. I was reading up on you and I saw that in 2003, you ran for governor of California with the greatest slogan that I'll solve all the state's problems in 22 minutes and 44 seconds and two commercial breaks and a hug at the end. It's, it's a great, it's a great slogan, isn't it? Well, I'll th- you, let me tell you the story of that. So, so, um, there was a recall election. So Gray Davis was governor of California. There was a recall election. This is the election that ultimately makes Arnold Schwarzenegger governor of California. Um, and uh, when I was reading about this election and, and they were the way the ballot was going to be set up, it was two questions. It was first the recall question. And then it was, well, if the recall passes, who's governor? So it was also an election. But the way they interpreted the law at the time was that to qualify for that ballot, it was the very low <clears throat> um, primary standard. And the primary standard in California is $3,500 and 100 signatures. That's like a student and council election. It really, it really is. And, and I, you know, it was one of those things where I noticed that now, I, now I was one of the first people to notice it. And later about, about 90 other people would make the <laughs> same observation and, and, and including, you know, the comedian Gallagher and, and uh, an adult film actress and, and, you know, and, you know, a, a number of other, shall we say novelty candidates, I, w- w- including me. Um, uh, but, Early on, I said, oh, my God, for $3,500, I could forever be former gubernatorial candidate Bill Prady. How could you? You can't pass that opportunity up. Well, and then in in an odd bit of of, um, uh, celestial fortune, I'm I'm not uh, particularly a believer in the supernatural, but I was with some people in Las Vegas, and we passed a roulette wheel, which by the way is a terrible game. If you're going to gamble, Horrible. it's an awful game. The house has an incredible mathematical edge, 
but for whatever reason, I, I put money on the roulette wheel and it paid exactly $3,500. And I said, well, all right, oh, clearly this sign. is a sign, a sign from the heavens. And, and so I said, all right, well, I will, I will run for governor. Now, I'll tell you this, this, this winds up being an odd adventure. To begin with, there is no separate form to fill out for I'm just doing this for shits and giggles. <laughs> there's, there's, <laughs> there's no shits and giggles a, box to check off. There, there really isn't. There's a single form. You, you have to go down to, the, to the, uh, the office of the Secretary of State and you get the form. And as I'm doing it, I realize, you know, as I fill it out, you know, a lot of things, you know, under penalty of law, and, you know, all of these things. And I'm going, this is, you know, <laughs> do I want to do this? And, and I had to do a complete, there's a financial disclosure law. So I filled out a, a financial disclosure form. Um, it's something and, Trump's never done. So that's exciting. Well, he's done the financial disclosure. He's done the official financial disclosure form. He often diverts when you talk about the income tax to the financial disclosure form. Correct. Um, but uh, but, but I, as I went through this, and then the other thing is you need 100 signatures of, of California registered voters. And you think, oh, my God, that's easy. I could do that in a day. Well, in fact, you need about twice as many because there are people who think they're registered to vote and, in fact, aren't. Ah. Um, so you need 200 signatures. And 200 signatures provide actually turns out to be a somewhat daunting task. And it wound up taking me about three weeks to accumulate 200 <laughs> signatures. And, and, you know, I was working, I was doing a show at the uh, CBS Radford lot uh, in Studio City, which is where, um, that's where Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore show was shot. And, um, so there were a bunch of shows shooting on the lot at the time, and I said, "Well, I'll go to writers' rooms and I'll get, you know, I'll get yeah. my, my my colleagues to do it." Well, you go into writers' rooms and comedy writers' rooms, and of course, what they want to do is <laughs> give you shit. So, you know, so going over and asking, you know, the ten people here sign the thing that winds up being a two-hour thing. I had an amazing, <laughs> amazing experience. Do you remember um, Harry Thomason, Harry and Lidward, Linda Bloodworth Thomason? Yeah. Absolutely. So they were they were they were friends of the Clintons, and they they produced uh, the Clinton um, they they produced that amazing series, A Man from Hope, uh, a short film, Man from Hope, which introduced Bill Clinton at the convention, and then they produced the inaugurations. And in 1993, I wound up working on the Clinton inauguration because they did a um, they uh, they did a children's inaugural special, which I wrote, which is really cool. It's Bill That's Clinton really and cool. Mr. Rogers and the Muppets and and a wonderful oh. wonderful experience. So at the time, I met Harry Thomason. So and then and then of course they have a, they have a um, second life in they um, uh, produce television series designing yeah. women, women. evening shade. So at the time, I'm I'm gathering these signatures. Harry had an office on uh, the Radford lot. And um, so I, I, I didn't realize, but I was literally walking into buildings seeing who was there. <laughs> and I went into, I knocked at his door and I said, Harry, I don't know if you remember me. He said, oh, sure, Bill, come on in, come on in. <laughs> and, and I said, will you sign the thing? He said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm registered in, in Arkansas. I'm not registered in Los Angeles. But then he proceeded, <laughs> I, I sat in his office for about four hours and he just told me Clinton stories and politics stories and 
unbelievable. Just, just, just an amazing afternoon. So in, in the end, I got the hundred signatures. I appeared on the ballot and, um, and then I know you're you're a Muppets fan, so I so I Huge. you know I'm, we're we're on this. I don't know if this is technically a tangent or if I've just hijacked your podcast. But you can I'll hijack the, it. <laughs> the most the most wonderful story. So when I I started writing at working for Jim Henson, I was very young. I was in my early twenties, and I had I had gotten to uh, Henson Productions very circuitous route, and I was working there as a as an assistant. I was working in the licensing department, which is sort of, you know, toys and things. And it was there that I, that I kind of on my own initiative started writing and started, um, <clears throat> you know, getting, um, uh, it was a very, it was a, the Muppets was a very, very small place, like a little mom and pop place. And so it was really easy to say, Hey, listen, I want to try this. And so that's, that's, that's when I did some writing and, um, uh, we were, oh, oh my God, I've lost my train of thought. Wait, we were, oh, 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 I know uh, the, the election. And so the, um, the, one of the writers who was there when I was at the Muppets was the amazing Jerry Jewell. And Jerry uh, wrote, uh, he wrote the Muppet movie, um, uh, the original Muppet the original? movie, his writing. Yeah. Uh. And he was also, he was uh, the second head writer for the Muppet show and he created Fraggle Rock. And so, and he was, he was just, just the nicest human being that, that, that you would ever want to meet. Just sweet and wonderful and very, very much a mentor of mine. <laughs> and about, about a year after the, uh, or about two years after the, um, the governor's race, uh, Jerry passed away. So when the, yeah. when the governor's race happened, they give you the results by county. And so I, I wound up getting 500 and some odd votes in the state of California, which I took as a mandate to lead. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, Congratulations. Sure. And, and they break it down by county. And so you're looking at it. So I see like the 180 votes out of Los Angeles County. And of course, that's my friends. And, and, um, <laughs> and there were like 60 votes in, in Orange County. And that's, you know, like my, my ex-brother-in-law and, and some people who were down there. And then the, all the other counties are like, you know, 7, 15, 12, except Mendocino County. In Mendocino County, I get something like 200 and some odd votes. So you need to move to Mendocino and be their mayor, it sounds like. Uh, right. And it's an absolute mystery to me, and it's, and, and it's unsolvable. So, so years later, Jerry Jewell passes away, and I'm driving to his memorial service, service which is going to be held in his hometown in Northern California. And as I'm driving in, I pass the county line, Mendocino County, and it sticks in my head. And after, after the service, I'm, we're back at the house and I'm talking to Jerry's widow, Susan. And I said, Susan, I said, years ago when I ran for governor and she broke out into a big smile, now, Jerry Jewell was the master of the gentle, <laughs> practical joke, the sweet, practical joke, and um, and she said when you she said when you ran for governor, Jerry and I thought it was the funniest thing, <laughs> so we printed up campaign literature, and went oh. door to door and campaigned for you. Stop. And, 
I know, and it worked to the extent that I, you know, that I wound up <laughs> with two hundred plus with more, votes. More votes than I think in Mendocino County than in Los Angeles County, <laughs> and that was, and that was absolutely, you know, Jerry, the master of the, you know, uh, of the the patient, gentle, practical joke that you know, some someday you'll find this and you will laugh, and and that it happened after he was gone. I, I think I think he would have appreciated that even more. But that that is my only uh, that is my only venture into actually seeking political office. I love Although, that he was in for the long game for that joke. That I have so much that, respect I for. I know, isn't that isn't that wonderful? Just to uh, have that it's, patience. It's it's hard to explain what a beautiful man Jerry is, other than to say he wrote the Muppet movie, and if you, you know that you know every, every piece of philosophy in the Muppet movie. You know, it went went through Jerry's pen, and um, uh, he also um, he had a, um, a a needlepoint sampler that hung above his word processor, and it read, "Not writing is worse." <laughs> and, <laughs> and and I've always thought, you know, when Perfect. I when I'm when I'm struggling to write, and when you know, when I realize what a loathsome you know, profession it is. I think about I think about those words of Jerry's that not writing is worse. I love that. It's uh when I was reading it's the Muppets, I think for lots of folks in my generation too, it was so it was such a pinnacle thing. And uh years ago my husband was working the new movie, Muppets movie came out and they're doing some promos and I whenever he's doing that, I, you know, I never go to the set. I never do it because I have no chill and I would not be cool. But when right. I heard this, I, I mean, I have like legitimately zero, zero, zero cool. Like there's stories of me like seeing Broadway shows being in like full on hysteria where people like crying so hard, people throw coins at me to make a wish. Like, how no. Can ha- how can you have no cool? You were a spy. If it's, I know it's, it's still a mystery to me, Bill. Like I truly, and it, he even looks and he's like, I don't understand how you did your job. If you are like this, I'm like, I don't know either. But I said, but there, there's something about it. And I begged, I said, I, I need to go to the set. I need to meet, meet Miss P. Like I need to do this. And so he's like, just promise me. I'm like, I'm making no promises because there's a good, good chance. I will not be chill. But it was it was magic. It is truly it was magical because they were doing almost like a roll call of all the characters for it. Right. And I just sat there, and then to when they would hold and to see see them see the actors, you know, improvise in character. It was it really. I kept saying like this this is like magic, and I was you know kind of regressed back to being you know you know an eight year old. But it was I just think that they're such beautiful artists. It was amazing. And then I went home and cried. So well, I feel if, like I kept there... my kept it up if you want to if you want to get really sort of into the puppet weeds of this thing that there are two things that jim henson did that changed puppetry and um the first is is the way puppets had always been presented on television was behind a puppet theater in in camera so if you look up say a children's show from the 1950s kukla fran and ollie um which was an incredibly popular show with puppets you would see that Fran spoke to the puppets, but the puppets were in, you know, like like a Punch and Judy theater. So that you know that that square where the puppeteer is hidden behind it. And Jim realized you didn't need that. That the net, that the frame of the television provides a natural proscenium. So what it meant is is that the puppets and the humans could physically be on the same plane, 
which makes immediately makes the puppets more real, real. Because, because they exist in the same physical space as the humans. And then the second thing he did was puppets were often performed to a recorded track, and, and then the puppeteers would just manipulate the puppets. Jim put microphones on the puppeteers and said, you are, you are the voice, you're an actor. So, so you know, when, you know, if you want to irritate a performer, you say, you know, do you do the voices as well and things like that. These are, <laughs> these are integrated performances. Right. This, is, this is a single, this is an actor. And, and the only difference is, is that he's, you know, using his hand instead of his mouth to open the jaw. But, but these are live, improvised, often very, very real performances. And again, that's also what makes the characters feel very real. And, and what I loved, you know, the years that I spent working with the Muppets, one of the most wonderful things is that, that the performers would often stay in character between takes because, it, it, you know, part of it is keeping your hand up, keeping it limber, and then, and then sort of, you know, like a method actor staying in yeah. character. But so, so what's great is, is if you walk into the set to give a note, you give it to Miss Piggy. <laughs> I, which I loved. Which is, which is truly wonderful because, you know, um, you know um, Eric Jacobson, who now has taken over the role of Miss Piggy from Frank Oz, who retired from puppetry some years ago. But you walk into the set and you say, Piggy, could you try that again? But, you know, a, you know, a, little, a little more angry or whatever. And she'll say, you got it! You know? <laughs> and, it's, and it's just, it's a fantastic moment. And it's a, it's a great fantasy moment. And, and it's truly lovely. I hate to segue because this is truly the worst segue ever. I'm just going to preface that, oh, but I want to do it. Do it. Okay, it's horrible, and I, I, you were, I hope it truly. I've built it up as the worst segue, so it probably is. <laughs> I, I kind of want to talk about Trump now. Um, I, it's the worst sub segue, right? Well, you know, you know, it's an interesting thing because you know you were talking about social media and stuff like that, and and I wonder, you know, because so, for me. You know, social media and Trump happen at the same time. Yep. And so, my, you know, I have, I, you know, I'm a lifelong member of the Democratic Party, and I've been a, a supporter of Democratic candidates, and and you know, and I and I know people in the party, and and I I, I truly believe in the values of the Democratic Party. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things that you know is often frustrating is is there's a um, there's sort of a team, uh, a team sports quality that that politics has has degraded into, and um, uh, you know the people, you know all the, the you know the damn the damn liberals, and you know and the and then the wingnut conservatives. And what I note is that very very few people can say can state what the parties believe, um, and part of the reason for that. And I truly believe this happens more on the right than on the left. Is that the parties, you know, have? I really want to focus on the Republican Party has essentially abandoned a, a belief system for a victory system. And the difference, the difference is a, a belief system says here, here are the tenets of our political position, and we're going to advance them, and we're going to hope people people agree with them. And if they do, we will be victorious. And then uh, the other way of going about it is saying, we want to win. So we will embrace those ideas that enable us to win, regardless of whether they suit the framework of our politics. So now, you know, so, so you look at, you know, for example, when, when um, 
1980, when the uh, Ronald Reagan-Jerry Falwell deal uh, happens and it completes the Southern strategy of bringing um, conservative Democrat, Southern Democrats into the Republican Party, mm-hmm. Barry Goldwater, no liberal at the time, said, you know, if we make a deal with these preachers, it, you know, it's the end of the Republican Party because it's in conflict with the stated beliefs of the Republican Party. The Republican Party was the party of small government, but if you make a deal with social conservatives who are looking for their social agenda to be legislated, well, that's That's big government. Big government. It's whether you agree with it or not. You know, whether you agree with whatever positions, you know, that they may hold, that's big government. And um, so... Uh, at that point, you know, you start to lose the foundation of the party. Well, now, ultimately, that, that brings you to Trump. And Trump, Trump comes to power, Trump comes to power, sort of, you know, he is, he is a golem created by the Republican Party. And if you know the, the legend of the golem, the golem is a, is, a, is a monster built of clay that's brought to life to you know to protect a town but um but then but then becomes the problem itself because if you make monsters monsters can't be controlled that's a better analogy i usually called him voldemort so i like Gollum much better no he was he was you know he was uh, he was brought to life from from within the republican party the republican party the modern republican party is a paradox because uh, um i can't there's a terrific book that um Many years ago, called um, I'll I'll get the title wrong. What's the matter with Kansas? I think is the name of it. But the question is, it poses the question: Why would um, why would people vote against their own financial interest? And so you go to Kansas, where people are struggling, but they vote for the Republican Party, and the Republican Party, the economic policies of the Republican Party don't benefit them. And the answer is is that the manipulation of social issues. Um, um, you know, makes you know, so so instead of voting their pocketbook, they vote their fear, which uh, is much more powerful. And more. Um, so the Republican Party over the years has said, um, you know, uh, for example, uh, and immigration I think is a big issue. Which is, they've said the reason that you're struggling economically is because people immigrants are coming and stealing your jobs. Now. You can you can sit and demonstrate the the you know the the falseness of this all day long, and it is unconvincing to people who believe it. Um, and the reason it's unconvincing is because it feels right. It feels right. So yeah. so you say you say well, you know the America of my parents didn't have this problem, and the America of today does. And well, what's different? And you look around and say, well, you know what, America looks different. America looks different. So clearly, that's the change. Now, the actual change, of course, is that um, where worker productivity has gone up, wages have not. And where, so, where has that money gone? The money has gone None. into increased pay for corporate executives and return money returned to shareholders and 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 things like that. We've just changed where money goes. But um, instead of saying the problem, the reason that you don't have uh, that you don't have economic stability, instead of saying you know the the reason is um, because corporations are no longer equitable in their approach to employees, and they're lining their pockets with all of this money. That's right. 
you, you say it is these strangers who have come to your land and who are stealing your jobs. And it's much easier to blame that. It's an easy, it's a much easier blame, I think, than to say, right. oh, these people I've trusted who are giving are giving us jobs, they wouldn't do that. And it's much easier. It's almost to have this villain that you can't really put a real face on. You can just put this amorphous face on to put the blame on them. And I and the sure. Republicans have done a great job of hitching their wagon right. to that. But now here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is, is if you identify a problem, you say, here's what, here's what the problem is. Vote for me and I'll take care of it. So you vote and you, and you elect Republican politicians, but they can't fix the, that, the problem because that's not really what the problem is. So they have a dilemma, and the dilemma is that I, if I campaign on I'm going to solve this problem, um, I, I really can't. And, um, you, know, you know, it's sort of like saying, I, you know, I can cure... I can cure your illness with magic. And well, they're going to build says, the wall, though, Bill. It's the wall. Right. It's going to well, fix everything. Right. And the caravan. That's right. Now, here's an interesting thing, which you, know, which you should consider, which is that you can stop undocumented immigration overnight. You can end it. Undocu- undocumented immig- immigration, people coming across the border to work, is an economic activity. It's an economic activity. This isn't an invasion. So this isn't people seeking to claim territory and make it part of another country. That's what an invasion is. So this is an economic act, which is that people go to a place where wages are available. And here's how you can solve undocumented immigration overnight. And it's it's a law. And the law would be hire an undocumented immigrant, go to jail. Now, if you pass that law, the market for undocumented workers dries up overnight. No one is going to risk having a housekeeper come and work in their house uh, who is uh, who's undocumented if they know that they're going to go to jail. We, we, I mean, we learned just two weeks ago, and of course nobody's paying attention to this, that, that the Trump properties employ undocumented immigrants. There was a woman and that was shocking the, to you, I'm sure, right, they, as it was wonderful, me. Yeah, wonderful New York Times piece that ran that you know no one noticed under the noise of what's going on, um, that pointed out that a woman who literally made Donald Trump's bed was an undocumented worker. So, the, but the reason, the other reason that um, that immigration, the immigrate, the so-called immigration problem isn't being solved, is that the Republican Party is a is a coalition, and one of the one of the members of that coalition is business and industry. And there are industries in this, in this country that depend on this labor force, and we know what they are. They are agriculture, they are hospitality, they are construction, and there are businesses like this that have traditionally, traditionally depended on this kind of labor force. Now, there are people who have proposed reasonable solutions to this, and one of them was George W. Bush. George W. Bush had an immigration policy that acknowledged the well-known economic fact that labor for industries like these is often immigrant labor, and said, let's acknowledge it and let's make it legal. Let's figure out a way to make it legal. Okay, and then the third problem about immigration. What's the other problem about immigration? I feel like I'm listening to your candidacy. Are you going to run well, for something? There you go. 
I feel like this is this is a really good. For, I was like, I'm like, hmm, Bill sounds like I'm a run, candidate right now. I'm I'm running for president of your podcast. So the, um, here's the, you're the only one running, so I think you've got a really good shot, Bill. I don't don't get your hopes awesome. up, but I'm, I'm crossing awesome. fingers for you. As long as nobody here's, rigs the ballots. <laughs> thank you. Here's the other problem that the Republican Party has with immigration, and it isn't the immigrants; it's their children, and it comes from. Uh, it comes from traditionally, traditionally the lower class and, and the blue collar class has voted democratic, but the Republican party kind of solved that. And they, and they did that with social issues. And so American blue collar workers were pulled into the Republican party, by the way, just for anybody who's listening, if I am inartful in, in language and I've used a, a term that we no longer use for something. I apologize intensely. It is should it we is rage often difficult. Tweet at you? Well, it, well, it's often difficult to, <laughs> to keep up with, and I I a hundred percent accept the changing of language. I also accept that I am fifty eight, and sometimes you know, <laughs> some, sometimes wander back in time in my description of people. But in any event. Um, uh, so, so you know, blue-collar workers pulled into the Republican Party with social issues, in, in Americans, you know, native-born Americans. But immigrants are different, and first generation are different. They're they're harder to they're harder to to pull that way with social issues. So, the other problem the Republican Party has is that the children of these immigrants, who will be American citizens, um, uh are going to are going to vote democratic yep. and 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 the republicans are the republicans are 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 dealing with a, with mathematical facts and the changing demographics of the united states you mean real okay. facts not well there you go okay well there you go absolutely so where do you get trump you get trump in the most amazing way trump says Instead of coming out and saying the Republican Party has lied to you, the problem isn't immigrants, the problem really is an economic structure in the United States that doesn't serve the worker, he doubles down. He says the problem is immigrants, and I think he stumbles into it by accident. Because do you I, think I, he really you know, believes he, it, or do you think he just realizes that if he I'm ne- I, terrifies I, I everybody, have, it'll work? I have, I have no interest in opining about what's in somebody's head. I can only look at what they do. And, but I will say this, is that Trump, during the campaign, tried out material the way a stand-up tries out material. Absolutely. Which is something occurs to him, and then it, and he says, well, that played very well, and I'm going to work that into the act, and then, and then I'll expand on it, and maybe you sort of think about it a little more. And I think the, you know, the comments that he made early on about immigrants, and, and, I, and I do think he comes, you know, there is, a, there is evidence of his behavior toward uh, you know, toward various groups that you know anybody can read and and yeah, and he's see. got a history of <laughs> he does, but I think he stumbles into this and, and it resonates and it feels right to the base. And then he does a remarkable thing. He says, he says it, 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 the problem is the foreigners, it is immigrants. The Republicans have been right. But the problem is, is all the Republicans you've elected, as soon as they get to Washington, they are corrupted and they do not solve the problem, which isn't actually the problem. And I won't be corrupted because I come from the outside. And to a certain extent, his, shall we say, lack of intelligence or or shall we say street nature? Can we just call it gross stupidity? Sure. 
Okay. Um, it becomes it becomes part of the appeal. So it appeals to a strong streak of anti-intellectualism that runs through American society, which says that you know smart people get us into trouble. So, so here comes here comes the here comes the rise here comes the rise of Trump, and it happens at the same time as the rise of social media. So, so when I got when I went on Twitter and you know I can't remember, I think it was a, a dad at uh, my kid's school who said you know you should check this out, and because on Big Bang Theory the characters tend to be not cutting edge on technology, but you know, but yeah. near so, and you know, very Absolutely. aware of things, and and so we uh, we had references to Twitter early on. Um, I remember the first reference we had to Twitter. Um, somebody said, "Well, the verb that's being used is to tweet," and we said in the room, "You know what? I don't think people have heard that, so let's not use <laughs> that." So, so the episode refers to someone's Twitter feed. Read their Twitter feed. And we decided the verb to tweet wasn't yet current, <laughs> you know, well known enough to use. Um, so, you know, so I, um, you know, so I, I get a Twitter account and I am, and at first it's very, you know, I'm very much talking about the show and things like that. And my account, oh, you know, within about a year, accumulates about a quarter of a million followers where it has stayed fairly steady for years. And, um, and then at some point, I start to run up against the cognitive dissonance created by uh, the political times we're living in, and and the, the the fact that the fact that facts themselves have begun to fall away, and and so you know what I start to say in social media begins to change, and as often as I can. It's in some sort of humorous construct, as best you, I can. Well, it's the and, best way sometimes to feed it. It's literally the spoonful of sugar method right. of of doing it. Um, but, you have a great quote about it too, uh, which I'd love for you to talk about because you said you're talking about just about social media, and you're saying you won't you won't find racists or anti semites out in fields with crosses these days. They gather on the internet, they strategize how to sanitize their message. They aren't neo-Nazis, they're, they're the alt-right. It's not hoods, it's suits. And I thought it was such a powerful way of looking at social media and really the power of it and, and what it's and what it's able to do now, you know, well, to, that's, for us. You're, you're, um, that, you're, you're quoting a passage from, a, from a, um, an address I gave to the, the, uh, ADL. the ADL. And th the context of that was this, and it has to do with it has to do with the rise of media and the creation of inter interconnectivity. And the, the marvelous thing, the marvelous thing about, about the ability to connect on, on, um, on the internet. I've always, every time I, I always think about um, Howard Zand, the novel by E.M. Forrester, which, which on the flyleaf, um, he, he begins with the words only connect. And if I've gotten that wrong, I'm horribly embarrassed. Um, but, um, uh, when, you know, when the internet comes to be, um, so I mean, uh, to step back for a second. So I'm, so I'm, a, I'm a kid of the early days of computers 
And, uh, you know, when I was, uh, you know, when I was 17, I would ride my bike to the Radio Shack store and the brand new TRS-80 was there. And I would literally, I would pull over a speaker box and sit on it and play with the computer. And the guys in the store <laughs> would let me do it because that, that's how they sold them because they didn't know how to use it. Oh, Radio and, Shack. Oh, Radio Shack, Radio Shack. My, my favorite place. And, oh. um, um, I'm, I'm always pleased. Steve, Steve Malaro, who, who created our, the spinoff Young Sheldon, um, gave young Sheldon um, the the same misty reverence for Radio Shack that yes. I I had growing. We 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 gave it we gave it to Sheldon in in Big Bang Theory, but Steve sort of enhanced that in Young oh. Sheldon. I always loved that because big part of my childhood. Loved, well, they recreate a, a Radio Shack store um, on uh, on their stage, and um, and it's truly wonderful. But so I you know I come. Uh, and and then when I when I moved to New York, I you know I was a, I was a programmer and I wrote software for you know what what we would come to call PCs, what we called at the time microcomputers, and um, you know it's just you know in the in the very early days of that, and so I was around for the you know the the beginnings of of connectivity which start with walled garden services like CompuServe and AOL and Prodigy. And then ultimately, you know, and at the same time, you know, the, the internet has been developed on the military side and then it becomes open to the general public. And so I watched all of that. And here's the amazing thing about that connectivity. The positive thing about that connectivity was that it allowed people who were isolated to find their people. And I think about, you know, uh, you know, I think about the, you know, the gay teenager living in a small town somewhere who is, you know, who, who finds help and resources, uh, you know, online or, or somebody suffering from an illness and, and, and it's a rare illness and they can find a community online and they can find information and all of these things that were once so difficult to do. And, and what an amazing thing, you know, what amazing thing this is, you know, you know, think about the, you know, think about, you know, the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the Jewish family in Montana with, you know, with no other Jews around them. They're the only Jewish family in Montana. It's just. Sure. Sure. But, you know, their ability now to, you know, to stream, uh, you know, a, a, a Sabbath service on their computer and join in with the community. So think about just, you know, the absolute glory of that connectivity. And as somebody who works in mass media, it's astonishing to me because Amazing. mass media now becomes bi-directional, right? So, so, you know, I'm from, you know, we make a thing and we send it out on the airwaves and you consume it. But now, you know, this, this becomes bi-directional. So it's glorious. And then it's the same, at the same time, it's awful. It's awful. You know, one of the things that you find, one of the most terrifying things that you find on the internet is the anorexia co- uh, community. And I don't mean the good one. I mean the bad one, you, you know, where, where, where teenagers are encouraged. It's almost, it's encouraging. And it's, it's a, yeah, I have nieces it, that I'm very familiar with all of this. Right. So, so the ability, the ability to stumble into, and, and people say, what's, you know, what's harmful on the internet is, you know, pornography is harmful on the internet. No. You know what? I, in reality, you know, people have been, you know, stealing 
Playboy magazine out of you know out of their their dad's sock drawer for generations. I, you know that's not it. What it, what it's, what's 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 dangerous on the internet is the pro anorexia community, for yeah. example. And what's really really dangerous is hatred. Is how how hatred found just just a just a a petri dish, a growth medium, and and you see. And, and, and it becomes incredibly complex. For example, you know, the, the um, I, you know, I don't even have the ability to explain what Gamergate was, and I encourage your listeners to do a little research on one of the darker incidents in the Internet, but it, 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 involved, it involved misogyny and the gaming community and, and various things, and, it, and it, brought out, it brought out a group of people filled, filled with rage. And that metastasized and joined with the um, the white supremacist community online, and so the, you know one community brought technical expertise, and the other brought even a new kind of hate. And that you know that that uh, the you know the the so-called incel community, the you know community of lonely, angry men. Were you surprised um, by that, though, Bill? I when no, it was coming it, out, I was no, curious. It's the natural consequence of connecting everybody. Once you connect everybody, once you connect everybody, glorious things happen. You know, the you know the guy, you know the, the you know the, you, you go online and you can find people who have performed jazz. You know, where everybody four people in four cities and they record it and it's great. But at the same time, it's people involved in hate, and it it seemed. You know, and I go back and forth on this. My, you know, my friend Will Wheaton left Twitter and said this has simply become a cesspool of hatred. And then, you, you know, then I talked to Alyssa Milano, and she says, "Well, I'm the, you know, she says, but I said, you know, do we all quit Twitter?" And she said, "But it's still the most effective way to change the national conversation." And she's doing and, an amazing job at that, by the way. Right, she's a she's 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 a remarkable person. The most amazing thing, by the way, that I've seen Alyssa Milano, Alyssa Milano do, is we were at one of the one of the marches that we were at. It might have been the um, the anti gun march or the well, I don't know what the official name of the March for Safety. I think it was the name of that march, and we were in downtown Los Angeles, and she has small children, and one of them needs a bathroom, and I watched. I watched Alyssa pick up her child and walk sideways through the crowd against the flow <laughs> to get the kid into into a CVS drugstore, and then somehow managed to come out through the crowd just with that incredible mom power. You know, I just got it's, her kid in one arm, and I'm going this way. I don't care I'm which way the all. crowd is working. So, of, of all the amazing things Alyssa Milano has done, getting her kid to the ba- to the bathroom in the CVS, the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Uh, you know, but, I'm talking uh, to her in a few weeks. So I will bring that up. Please, please do. I really please will. Do. <laughs> yes, um, but. Um, uh, we're, it's in, I, we were I've talking lo- about the I've surprise of it. No, it's it's interesting oh. because for me, I was, I think, I, I knew there was anti-Semitism and I knew there was racism. I mean, none of that was a surprise. I, I think for me, and I had experienced some of it growing up. You know, I was from the Midwest, so we were sort of unique, being you know this Jewish family there. But there was other families, 
and experience in college and such, but never to this extent. And so it, That's it, right. did, it did take me, That's it was, right. I, it's been a good yeah, for me. I made the, um, made the same comment to, you know, in, in my address to the ADL, where I pointed out that, that, that for most of my life, anti-Semitism was a thing I understood to exist. I certainly, you know, I, 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 I knew about World War II and things like that. But the notion that it would be something that I and my children would, would actually confront but part of it, part of the problem is, part of the problem is, is that it's so complex to explain these things. And I'll t- I'll give you two examples that that um, uh, that that are about anti-Semitism that even people well versed in in uh, you know the notion of of um, prejudice and anti-Semitism don't generally don't understand. And 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 I won't put you on the spot, but one of the things in Charlottesville, the the Tiki Torch Nazis, when they were marching, were chanting, "Jews will not replace us." Now most people have no idea what they're talking about, and if you ask people what they will say, is I think they mean that Jews won't replace us in our jobs. That in other words, that we will continue to hold society as, as a Gentile society. That's not what they were talking about. The phrase Jews will not replace us was referring to one of the most bizarre but currently very popular anti, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories on the far right. And the conspiracy theory goes this way. Jews, it says, have a plan to destroy white society. Oh, well, I mean, that's true, Bill. Have you sure. not been briefed? That's right. Well, at the meetings, of course. At the I meetings. remember you. It was lovely. You brought cookies. I always um, bring snacks. Always. So the idea is that there is this conspiracy of Jews to destroy white society. Now, how are they going to do it? Jews are going to do it by funding and encouraging immigration of brown people. So the theory goes that Jews are replacing white people with brown people. Now, these conspiracy theories insane. are very very uh, they're very complex. It's very complex except to say that if you go online and you start and you go to the, you know, the white supremacist websites, they will walk you through how this is happening. This is That's their theory. Kind of them. Right. So now, Jews will not replace us. Jews are operating a conspiracy theory to bring brown people into the United States. When Donald Trump talks about the caravan of brown people who are marching north to the United States, who does he say is paying for it? Soros. George Soros. George Soros is a Jew. Now, there's also an, another amazing, you know, there's an amazing right-wing conspiracy thing. When I talk about George Soros, I'm not talking about Jews. In fact, George Soros, according to an unbelievable, insane, <laughs> well-debunked theory, George Soros, in fact, is a Nazi. Oh, you didn't know well, no. this? Uh. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so this theory, you know, this theory that, um, you know, so when, when the... This theory that Jews are engaged in a plan to destroy white society by bringing in brown people, that's what Jews will not replace us means in Charlottesville 
And that's what George Soros is funding the, the, the caravan means. You so heard it when, here, folks. That's so when what George Soros is doing. Right. So when the president says, I think George Soros is funding it. Now, by the way, he's not. Of course not. He's he's not. And 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 how would he? Is there a you know, do that? I did not see a Kickstarter for the caravan. Oh, but but, he went on Shark um, Tank. That's right. And then then let's look at another um, seemingly innocuous thing. And it, and it sprouted on Fox News about 10 years ago, and it was very much a part of the Trump campaign. And that's the war on Christmas. Oh, for Fox Now, the, yes. war, the, war, the war on Christmas actually begins years and years ago with uh, you know, people like the notorious anti-Semite Henry Ford um, talking about some people who don't want people to say Merry Christmas. Now, who are those people? Those people, of course, would be Jews, right? Now, the <laughs> truth of the matter is, is that is you're Jewish and I'm Jewish, and, and I don't think that I'm going to say that at no point in your life have you ever taken umbrage at somebody saying to you, Merry Christmas. I could and, li- and, unless they do it in October, because I'm not ready for right. the holidays, and then I'll take right. umbrage with anything. I take umbrage with Happy Holidays, Happy Thanksgiving, right. anything like that. Then I'll take umbrage. Right. I could literally give two shits if someone says Merry Christmas. I usually just right. say Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Right, and I, I I don't know any Jewish person who has ever turned and say, "How dare you? I'm not Christian." The what what Jews say when you say Merry Christmas to them is they say Merry Christmas back to you. Yep. But the war on Christmas began in some of the most anti-Semitic corners of society. It was in publications. It, it, it was publicized ultimately by an anti-Semitic website called V Dare, which is named after uh, 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 Virginia Dare, the, the, um, the colonist, American colonist child, and which is an ultra right-wing anti-Semitic website. And they used to run a contest saying, can you find egregious examples of, of this? And so this, so the war on Christmas began as an anti-Semitic Henry Ford, John Birch, B. Dare thing that moved into, um, into Fox News. And, and people said, well, look, they're not, you know, they're not saying this is anti-Semitic. And you say, well, okay, but you've got to take a look at where that comes from and, and what it is you're saying. And one of the one of the things that you do, the, the one of the ways that you deal with um, minorities is you try to do what's called othering. You try to other them. You try to say they're not real members of our society. And you you know you you do it by saying that the first black president wasn't born in the United States. You I was going to say we're we're right. in a time of major othering right now. That's right. Or, or you do it by saying that, that when it comes to holidays in December, that the American holiday is Christmas and these people are other. Others. And, and we, will not, we will not bend our, our winter traditions you know, you know, to do this. And um, you know, there, I, I, I've written about the, you know, the war on Christmas and, and pointed out that, of course, the Christian church for, for many, many years in the United States, starting you know, starting from the earliest days of the Republic, did not want Merry Christmas associated with commerce. And they, that, that Christian sects objected 
to retailers running ads that said Merry Christmas and Christmas sale and things like that. But Bill, that's going to ruin the narrative of that people are wanting to Right, but but, but they found it, exactly, but they found it offensive that the holiday was being used, you know, to sell things. It's co-opted. Right. And, and so that, you know, so the notion that, that, you know, you know, you can read editorials from, from as late as the 1920s objecting to Macy's running ads, that's, you know, newspaper ads that say Merry Christmas saying this is, this is ex, this is exploitation of our religious belief, you know, to, you know, to sell things. So what the war on Christmas is, is anti-Semitism packaged for a uh, package with built-in um, deniability and and all of these things and 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 I guarantee you I, if you put that on on Twitter if you were to say that people are going to come after you and attack you and it would well but I but I do I but know I but do, don't you know? what do people say it, when you say that though aren't they how well, dare you say that well, one of the things that I try to do, and, and people, people ask me about this, one of the things that I will do is I will engage in arguments with people on Twitter. And somebody says, why, why are, are you doing man. that? Those are, those are Twitter trolls, and you'll never convince them. And I have no interest in convincing them. What I want to do is show somebody how, you can, how this argument is constructed. So if, if somebody, if you say the war on Christmas is anti-Semitic, and somebody says, how can you say that? And I said, well, here you go. Here, here's, here are links to information about that. So that, you know, so that somebody, when somebody finds themselves in that argument, you know, over a Thanksgiving table, they say, well, you know. Wait a minute, were you at my Uncle, Thanksgiving, Bill? There you go. I think you, you know, were there. You, say, you know, actually, Uncle Ted, here is the information about how, you know, how that p- particular thing comes to be. And... Um, so, you know, so one of the things I, I, I guess I am hopeful and that I truly believe if we can get people to examine things that they're saying, to really examine things that they're saying, that, um, that there's the possibility for change. I agree with you. <laughs> and I'll, yeah, and I'll, I, um, I was going to say, I, I agree with you and I think it's hard sometimes to have that optimism and, but I think we've had it before and it's going to take a change obviously in the administration to do that. But I do believe that that's true. That's one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you is because of all the work that you were doing. And I've read, you know, obviously a bunch of interviews and such, but talking about giving voice to the most vulnerable and, and being able to present this information as you are, even when people are like, you're, you're going to be talking against walls, but being able to really explain it and to encourage a conversation, I think it's so important because we're not doing that right now. We are literally just kind of talking at people and hoping if we just talk louder and use more exclamation points in our tweets that that will do it. And so I think, I think you're right. And I think it's, and I hope that that's where we're going because I think people are getting so frustrated with the tone and the rhetoric across the board that I hope that'll happen. I didn't say both sides, by the way. I I was like, well, nope, not <laughs> both sides. Um, so I think that's that was something that I've I've been heartened by and I was heartened by the work that you've done and obviously you won that the award as well. And I think it's and I hope it becomes more of a model for how we engage people as well. I think one of the things that we that we have to do 
let's see. Let's see if we can. Let's see if we can prove Jonathan Swift wrong. Jonathan Swift is is the actual originator of the quote that's generally paraphrased as. It's hard to reason a man out of a position he wasn't reasoned into in the first place. <laughs> the, the the original quote is longer and more flowery, but 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 I liked idea, your version. There you go. That it comes from Swift, and and I said maybe that's not the case. And and I'll, I will give you an example. There's a um, a fellow I know. He's a is absolutely wonderful. Um, he's a he's a stunt man, brilliant stunt man. And he said he said to me, you know, we come from a very, very different political place. And he said, but I, he said, but I always find you interesting. Would you ever have lunch with me so that, and explain to me your issues from your point of view? And I said, oh, I, oh my God, I'd love to. So we, we had a, a wonderful I mean, lunch. That would be a dream for me. You want to hear me talk? Sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. And I, and I said, I said, well, let's pick an issue. I said, I said, when you, I said, when you go to vote, I said, what drives you most? And he said, for him, he said, abortion. And I uh, said, okay. Okay. I said, that's, I said, that, I said, that's a really hard one. But let's start with that first. And, and I, said, I said, I assume that your hope would be that the number of abortions that occur goes down. And he said, yes, of course, absolutely. And I said, well, then let's first turn to science, to see if there's any way to figure out of all the things that you can do, what actually does reduce the number of abortions? And this is well studied, and the, the Guttmacher yeah, Institute is a, a great place to go for these studies. And you can ask this question. A shout say, out to the Guttmacher Institute. Absolutely. But you can ask these questions. You can say, does making abortion illegal reduce the number of abortions? Does you know what 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 are the various things that you can do? But you know you have lots of levers you can pull. Which one, which one most effectively reduces the number of abortions? And the answer is clear and convincing. And the answer is education yeah. and access to contraception. That will reduce the number of abortions. So you and and you 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 go and you say which countries have the lowest abortion rate, and it's Scandinavian Scandinavia. countries. They're always ahead right. of everybody. Right. They're always looking so, at like really, guys, really, you, you can't get this, you right. can't get on board. This is this has been working for years. Right. So so then I then I said to I said to this fellow, I said, so do you agree? Do you agree that if you wanted to reduce the number of abortions, that one of the way, the best way to do it would be to employ those techniques that have been shown to most effectively effectively reduce the number of abortions. And he said, "Well, yes." And I said, "And if you take a look at countries that have outlawed it, it doesn't really reduce the abortion rate. It increases the death rate of of women, but it doesn't really reduce the abortion rate." I... And and he said, "Well, yes, of course." Okay. And I said, "Well, then at the last presidential election." You faced a choice between two candidates, only one of whom had campaigned on a program of increasing sex education and access to contraception, and that was Secretary Clinton. And I said, so you voted for the candidate less likely to accomplish the thing that you said is most important to you. This is why I would never want to debate you. 
Wow. Because using facts and reason. Um, and I don't mean to stop you, Bill, because I want to hear the rest, but I am getting a little cue that we, we have to unfortunately kind of wrap up. Oh, let's wrap up. But let's, I, let's, I let's have move to, to some kind of amazing conclusion. Okay, my amazing conclusion is that you gave me a shout out that I'm holding over my husband for the rest of my life. I tweeted a joke and you retweeted it and you said, this is exactly how jokes work. And well, that, yes, because it was funny. And that's my, I have a, a, a recurring thing of uh, pointing out Mike Huckabee's jokes don't work as They don't jokes. work. They're horrible jokes. And it truly, even put aside what he says, they're horrible, but it doesn't, it's not a joke. Sometimes so, I actually try and fix his joke for him and say, if you want to do this, here's, here's how you do it. But you, you tweeted out and I can't remember what it was. And I apologize. I, I can tell you it's in Trump's tell defense. Tell me what it was. I mean, off the top of my head, I would just say in Trump's defense, the only reason he set up a pyramid scheme was to teach Erica shapes. <laughs> that, that is correct. That is how jokes work. That is, that is quite right. And I think it was on a day that Mike Huckabee had tweeted something absolutely awful. I said, no, 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 this is how jokes work. Look over here. This you is know a beautifully I constructed joke. You have no idea how that delighted me so much. And like, I, I printed it out. I took screen grabs. I, oh, really? I, read, I read it out loud in the Big Bang Writers Room. And it was, it was well appreciated there as well. Oh my God! I can I can now I can I can milk this for a couple more weeks. This is this is amazing. This is Absolutely. this is the best holiday gift ever. Well, I yeah. want to thank you. Um, I just want to say thank you again. I am obviously oh, sure. a, a fan of you and your work and everything you have done post election in in terms of just giving a voice to so many issues and so many people who are are needing that strong voice right now. And I want to just tell everybody that you can visit Deep State Radio Network and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive access to all the podcasts, one-on-one newsmaker interviews, discounts on Deep State Radio swag, newsletters, more. And through the end of the year, Deep State Radio, which is my favorite, favorite part, donates 10% of all proceeds to the Malala Fund and International Relief Fund. You can always give the gift of Deep State Radio membership. You can follow us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can follow Bill on Twitter, and he's endlessly delightful. Um, you can follow me. I'm at CIA Spy Girl. Send me any quotes, questions, thoughts, as long as they're kind and lovely. If not, you don't have to send them to me. And thank you, Bill, and thank you all so much for listening. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.